go ahead and dismiss our kids this morning to Kids Church. Uh, I want to uh, point out uh, something. Next Sunday uh, is Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. Uh, we will have a nursery next Sunday, uh, but we will not have Kids Church. Uh, I think that it's important throughout the year periodically uh, to have our kids in church worshiping with us. I want them to see uh, our parent. I want them to see their parents worshiping. I want them to see their parents following along. I want them to see their parents uh, as we interact with one another. And so I think it's important uh, we understand that that worship is not only uh, not only taught, but worship is caught. Uh, and so next Sunday on Easter Sunday, uh, we will have our kids, uh, grade school age kids, in here and worship with us. Uh, we will still have a nursery uh, for those who need it, uh, but. Uh, it's going to be a little louder, uh, and that's okay. Uh, and so we're just wanting to uh, enjoy the blessings that God has given us next Sunday. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to the book of Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, uh, we're going to be reading this morning verses 38 through 51. Matthew 27, 38 through 51. This is everyone's Palm Sunday passage, right? Matthew 27, verse 38. We pick up and we read, At that time two robbers were being crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads, saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests, along with the scribes and the elders, were mocking him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we shall believe him. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him now if he takes pleasure in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers also had been crucified with him, were casting the same insults at him. Now from the sixth hour... Darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama shabachthani, that is my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there and heard it began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran, taking a sponge and filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, yielded up his spirit. Behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. Let's pray. God, may we see your power, your might your providence, your sovereignty in this passage. May we understand that Jesus may not have been what the crowds expected, but He was the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the earth. Lord, may we see Jesus as the Messiah, because He is the only Messiah. For it's in His name we pray. Amen. Well, I'd be remiss this morning to not talk about Palm Sunday. Uh, Palm Sunday 
is the Sunday that commemorates Jesus' triumphal entry. And even though our text this morning does not deal specifically with the triumphal entry, what I want to look at is the drastic change from Palm Sunday to now Good Friday in our text. As Jesus enters into Jerusalem, as Jesus enters in in fulfillment of Scripture, riding on the colt of a donkey that has never been ridden, as Jesus enters into the cries of the people, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, there is a clear messianic expectancy. Now, I don't know if we realize it or not, but the book of Psalms is the Israelites, it is the Hebrews' hymnal. They didn't have a hymnal like we do today, and many of you are looking at me saying, what's a hymnal? Uh, for those of you who are younger than 30, uh, there are some books in the, uh, in the baskets under your chairs that are hymnals. Occasionally, we will use them, uh, but they are books of songs, and the Hebrews did not have song books. They had the book of Psalms, and it was, uh, the, the book of Psalms was poetry. It was songs that were sung by the people. And one of the songs that were sung by the people was called the Hillel. And the Hillel is Psalm 118. And so if you go to Psalm 118, I'm sorry, Chris, I didn't get you these. Uh, Psalm 118, verse 24, 25, and 26, you will see a portion of the Hillel that was sung as Jesus entered into Jerusalem. Now, the reality is, is they would have probably sang this entire psalm, but this is what Matthew and Luke and Mark record Matthew chapter one. I'm sorry, Psalm 118, verses 24. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. That sounds familiar to us, right? It ought to, because there are songs that have been adapted from the Hebrew songs that have been made into English songs. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad it. Be glad in it. O Lord, do save. We beseech you. We beg you. O Lord. We beseech thee, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. And so this is what they are singing. This is a messianic psalm. For all of the Hebrews and all of the Israelites, they would have understand this to be a cry out to God for salvation, a cry out to God for His, his direct intervention to send the Messiah. Oh God, we beg you, send someone to save us blessed is he who comes to save us who comes in the name of the lord that's what they're singing when jesus enters into jerusalem and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders are saying make them shut up make them be quiet this is not the messiah and what does jesus say if they refuse to cry out if they refuse to say blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord the very rocks themselves will cry out. There was a messianic expectancy as Jesus entered into Jerusalem. And as he entered into Jerusalem, there were palm branches that were laid. There were, there, were, there were cloaks that were laid down. And Jesus entered in with this triumphal entry. And he enters in, and where does he go? He goes straight to the temple. Exactly what you would expect the Messiah to do. He enters into Jerusalem, goes straight to the temple, but does not assume his role as the king. But rather, what does he do? He overturns the table of the money changers and he drives them out of the temple complex. Uh, Chris, if you'll put up this uh, image, what you see here is, is a, 
uh, a rendition of Solomon's temple. This is not the actual temple uh, that, was, uh, that Jesus was at. This is Solomon's temple, but it was laid out much the same. Uh, after uh, the destruction of Jerusalem, after the first destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, the temple was destroyed and the temple was rebuilt by Zerubbabel and Nehemiah and Ezra. But this gives us an idea. What we have here is, this is the, 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 the court of the Jews. This would have been where Jesus entered this would have been where the, the lambs were being uh, traded and bought and sold and slain. This would have been where, uh, where the, the sacrifices were being made in this outer court right here. And this is where Jesus enters. He enters into the outer court uh, of the temple and he overturns the tables and he drives them out of the temple courtyard. And as he drives them out of the temple courtyard, he makes a lot of people very, very angry. And so we, we talked last week about all of the events that transpired between Palm Sunday and this Good Friday. And so we enter into today's text five days later on Good Friday. And what was it that precipitated the violent change from Hosanna, blessed is our Messiah, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and crucify him? Well, there was a clear messianic expectancy that was absolutely shattered when the crowd saw Jesus bloody and shackled. Understand, the Jews expected this Messiah to be their deliverer, to be their salvation. And here was their deliverer, beaten, bloodied, and chained. Clearly, he was not their Messiah. Clearly, he was not what they expected. Now, it's important that we point out that the crowd that was there on Palm Sunday in the triumphal entry was decidedly different than the crowd that was there at the cross. The crowd on Palm Sunday was predominantly a Galilean crowd. The crowd that was there on Palm Sunday were those who had followed Jesus into the city. Those who had walked with Jesus when he fed the thousands. Those who had been sitting as Jesus, as Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount. Those who had watched him turn the five loaves and two fish to feed five thousands. Those who had watched Jesus calm the storm. Those who had been with him and had seen the miracles. And so they were much more ready to accept this Jesus. Now, as Jesus enters into and there's this, there's this, this buzz about the city, the, the stories and the testimony of what Jesus had done began to permeate the crowd. And those Jews that were there, those Jews in Jerusalem began to say, well, maybe this is the Messiah. But as Jesus shows up on Good Friday, beaten, bloody, and in chains, those who were hopeful that maybe this was the Messiah, said, clearly not this guy. Clearly, it is not this guy. And that's where we pick up in our text. So if you've got your Bibles, Matthew chapter 27, verse 38. At that time, the two robbers were being crucified on him, one on his right and one on his left. I want to point out the irony there. As a king would stand, he would have his servants, one on his right and one on his left. 
And Matthew continues to portray the irony that Jesus is being mocked as king. Even as he is exalted onto the cross, a king would have a servant on his right and a servant on his left. And here we see Jesus, even in the crucifixion, even in the, the, the way uh, and the manner and the setting of the crucifixion, was a mockery to Jesus' authority and Jesus' kingship. But I want you to look at verse 40. Here we see the final temptation of Jesus. The crowd saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God. That ought to ring clear. It ought to be reminiscent of Jesus' first temptation. Go back to Matthew chapter 4. As Jesus is tempted by the enemy, as Jesus is, enters into the wilderness, the first temptation that Satan attracts, I'm sorry, that Satan confronts Jesus with is verse 3. He says this, And the tempter came and said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. If you are the Son of God. And here, in Matthew chapter 27, the crowd says what? If you are the Son of God, if you are the one who can destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, come down off of the cross. This is Jesus' final temptation, and it echoes the temptation that he heard in Matthew chapter 4 in the wilderness. I want us also to hear the faithless claims of the religious leaders. Look at verse 42. He says this, he says, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we shall believe him. Now let me ask a very pointed question. Had Jesus come down off the cross with the chief priests and the elders had believed that he, Jesus was the Messiah? What else does the man need to do? They had seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. They had seen him walk on water. They had seen him calm the storm. They had seen him cast out demons. They had seen him feed the thousands. They had seen him turn the water into wine. They had seen him perform miracle after miracle after miracle. They had seen him perform signs and wonders. They had seen him fulfill every prophetic scripture up until this point. And they say this. They say, if he is the Son of God, if he is the King of the Jews, let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. I believe that these faithless claims of the chief priests and the elders and the religious leaders mirror our faithless claims in our lives. We say, maybe not out loud, maybe not audibly, but we say, if God will only do this, then I will believe Him. If God will only save my children, if God will only protect my grandchildren, if God will only get me out of this mess I'm in, if God will only save my marriage, then I will, I will believe that He is the Messiah. Then I will trust Him. Has not God demonstrated His faithfulness throughout the years, whether or not He fulfills our Santa Claus list? Jesus is not, God is not, some big Santa Claus in the sky that, that, that we go to him with our list of stuff that we want and only when he provides the stuff that we want that do, do we get to say, okay, now I'll believe you. Now I'll trust you. 
Hear the message of Job. Though he slay me, yet I will have faith in him. Yet I will hope in him. Hear the message of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they are standing at the precipice of the fiery furnace. They look at the king and they say, Hear, O king, this. The God that we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand. But even if he does not, we will not bow down to you and we will not worship your graven image. God didn't have to demonstrate who he was because he was who he was. Paul said it like this in Romans chapter 1. He said the invisible attributes of God have been clearly seen from the foundation of the earth that all men are without excuse. Does he need to prove his faithfulness to us? We sure live like he does. We sure live like he does. Notice how God introduces himself in the Old Testament. Every time God introduces himself, he introduces himself. I'm the God who delivered you out of Israel. I'm sorry, out of Egypt. I'm the God of your father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm the God who delivered you out of the Philistine. He always introduces himself in light of his faithfulness. Why? Because we are a forgetful people. I wonder if these chief priests and these elders had remembered how Jesus had confounded them time after time every time they tried to trap him. I wonder if they had remembered what Jesus had done to Lazarus. I wonder if they had remembered the testimony of Nicodemus, the chief priest and elder, the chief teacher, the chief Pharisee in Jerusalem in John chapter 3. They say, if you will just do this, then we will believe. I want to point out verse 45. The scripture says, from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. They begin counting hours from sunrise, so this would have been about noon. If the sun rose about 6 a.m., the sixth hour would be about noon. The scripture tells us very blatantly and very clearly that from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there was darkness that covered the earth. This is very important for us to understand what took place and what symbolically that meant. During this, this time of darkness, as, as darkness fell upon the earth, Jesus is alienated from the fellowship of God. Jesus is imputed the sin of mankind. It's important for us to understand that Jesus is without sin. He is the blameless lamb. He is the lamb that is without blemish. The scripture tells us in Hebrews that we have a high priest who has been tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin that he was that spotless lamb. In fact, because of his virgin birth, he not only is without practical sin, but he is without original sin. He came into the world not from the seed of man, but he came into the world from conceived of the Holy Spirit apart from the sin nature. And so Jesus enters into the world, he enters into this world completely pure and holy and blameless and commits no act of sin or disobedience. And as he hung upon the cross, the scripture tells us that the sky was darkened from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock, giving all who witnessed it a very physical, 
tangible illustration that God had removed his fellowship from Jesus. Jesus was from the first time for all eternity separated in fellowship with God. The scripture tells us that Jesus, that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit had perfect union from eternity past to eternity future. And for the very first time in all of eternity, Jesus, God the Father, and God the Son were separated because of sin. And not Jesus' sin, but our sin. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that God made Him who knew no sin to become sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. God placed the iniquity of us all upon Jesus. And when Christ was imputed our sin, the perfect fellowship, the perfect union between the Father and the Son was severed. And it was symbolized by darkness. Darkness has always been synonymous with sin. Why do you think that the Scripture tells us that Judas approaches Jesus under the dark of night? Darkness is always associated with sin in Scripture. And in verse 46, Jesus makes this very profound statement. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. He asks the question, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He quotes Psalm 22. And many of us, many scholars believe that, that he quotes the entire Psalm 22. Whether he quotes the entire Psalm or not, it's important that we understand that the audience would have understood exactly what Jesus was saying. And it's important that we understand the context of Psalm 22. Jesus is not thinking that his father has left him, but he conclude, the, the conclusion of Psalm 22 is this. Why does your salvation tarry? Why is your salvation, why is your deliverance taking so long? The weight of this sin is more than I can bear. God May your salvation come. That's the message of Psalm 22. That's the message when Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It feels as though I can bear this weight no longer. Let your salvation come. Let it not tarry one more moment. Because Jesus felt the weight of your sin and my sin. He felt the weight of every impure thought. He felt the weight of every half-truth. He felt the weight of every aspect of your disobedience and my disobedience. He felt the weight of the entire world. And as God imputed our sin to Christ, His wrath was poured out upon Jesus. And I want to point out to you, church, the wrath of God was not the physical anguish of the cross. There were many, many martyrs who suffered greater than Christ, who were skint alive, drawn and quartered, crucified upside down, and all of them went singing to their grave, praise be to God, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and I am thrilled that I get to suffer for the cause of Christ. The anguish and the wrath that Jesus felt was not the physical pain, but it was the separation, it was the, the disunion between the Father and the Son. 
And as Jesus hung upon the cross, He became our payment. He became our propitiation. I want to point out to you two passages. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. It says, And He Himself is the propitiation. Propitiation is just a fancy word for payment. And He Himself is the payment for our sin. And not for ours only, but also for those of the entire world. If you flip over to 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, we see, it, we see John saying it like this. And in this love, and in this, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son so that He might become the propitiation, the payment for our sin. And as Christ hung upon the cross, He became our payment for sin. I want to show you something. Go back to the temple, Chris. Remember we write, or we understand that Matthew was written to a Jewish audience? We have the holy place and then the holy of holies. This is where the priests and the Levites would conduct their worship, and it was set up for a specific purpose to convey a specific truth about God and about how we should interact with Him in worship. That God Himself is completely other. He is holy. The word holy literally means to be set apart, to be other. And as the priests and the Levites would, would worship, as they would intercede on behalf of the people, they would do so in this holy place, and they would consecrate themselves, and they would wash themselves sometimes multiple times before they entered into the holy place, and they would, they would trim the candle, and they would, they would put incense in the altar of incense and they would burn the altar of incense and they would put bread on the table of showbread and they would they would perform all the acts of priestly worship and once a year once a year the high priest a descendant of Aaron would consecrate himself and would enter the holy of holies and the holy of holies was a representation of the presence of God and the presence of God dwelled in the holy of holies and in the Ark of the Covenant. And once a year that high priest would cross the veil which separated the presence of God from the people of God and would enter into that Holy of Holies and would make atonement, would bring a sacrifice first for himself and then for the people of Israel. And he would make payment for their sin. On this day, on Good Friday, I want us to see what the text says. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lama shabachthani, why, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there began saying, this man is calling for Elijah, verse 48. Immediately one of them ran, taking a sponge, and he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah comes to save him. Verse 50, and Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. In the picture of the temple, there's a veil that separates the holy place from the holy of holies. The veil was approximately 30 feet by 30 feet, 30 feet high, 30 feet wide. And the scripture does not tell us how wide it is, however, how thick it is, however, Josephus a Jewish historian tells us that it was approximately the breadth of a man's hand. So approximately four to six inches in thickness. 
So this is not a curtain hanging over a dressing room. This is not a curtain hanging over a window. This is a four to six inch piece of material that has been sewn together and sewn together and sewn together and sewn together with, with, with a fine linen of, of purple and scarlet and gold and all of these beautiful colors that symbolize the deity and the majesty of the glory of Christ. And it's 30 feet by 30 feet by four inches. And the scripture says, when Jesus gave up his spirit, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And that's important for us to understand. It was not torn in two by any man. It was not torn in two by any force of nature. But God himself ripped down, entered into the temple by his presence, and he tore that veil in two. From top to bottom, that veil was severed. What did that communicate to the Jewish people? What did that communicate to all those who were there? That this, this sacrificial system, this need for a priest, this need for an intercessor, this need for someone to go on your behalf to God was no longer necessary. That Christ was our payment. Christ was our high priest. And now we can have perfect fellowship with a holy God because of what Jesus has done. We now have access to God. Hear the message of Jesus in John 14. John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man can come to the Father but by me. Jesus said, I am the conduit for the grace of God. I am the conduit for, for a relationship with the Holy God. Because the payment of sin has been satisfied, because the wrath of God has been placated, there is now access to the Holy of Holies through the shed blood of Jesus. Do you see the importance and the implication of that? It's important for us to understand. God was saying, because the sin debt is paid, we now have access to a holy God. And I also want to point out in verse 50 that it was Jesus who yielded up his life. The Romans didn't take it from him. The Jews didn't take it from him. High priests didn't take it from him. Satan didn't take it from him. John chapter 10 says, No one has the authority to take my life, but I give it up that I may lay it down. It is Jesus who yielded His life in atonement for our sin. It is Jesus who made it possible for sinful man to have access to a holy God. What is important for us to understand, church, is nowhere in this passage do you and I have any part to play but our sin. We bring nothing to the table but our sin. Access to God is granted not because we said a prayer, not because we walked down an aisle, not because we got wet in a baptistry. Access to God is solely on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It is what Jesus has done and nothing else. Not church membership, not church attendance, not how much money you give, not how many times you serve, not anything that we can do, but all of what Jesus has done. And by His great love, He was motivated to lay down His life. 
And so here's the question I have for us, church. Have we been alienated from God's presence? The answer is yes. We were born into this world. We were born into sin. We were born haters of God. We are born striving after sin, striving after that which pleases our flesh. We are alienated from God. But God, by His great mercy, reached out and plucked us from the miry clay and placed our feet upon the rock. We love God because He first loved us. We seek after God because He first sought after us. God demonstrated His own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ made access to God possible. Our responsibility is to respond to Jesus. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we came... this morning there was an excitement there was a joy because of Palm Sunday because there was a messianic expectancy Lord this morning there are those here who have been alienated from God they've tried to be good enough they've tried to appease God by their by their actions by their by their service by their holiness their pseudo holiness but they realize because of your Holy Spirit convincing them that they've been alienated from a holy God if that's you this morning I want to invite you to come we can have access to a holy God because of a holy sacrifice Jesus has torn away that which separates us from God. Jesus has done away with our sin. Jesus has done away with anything that prohibits you from coming to Christ, from coming to God. He simply asks that you respond. Or maybe this morning you're there and you've been living your life the same way that the high priests and the elders have said, if God will just do this, then I will believe Him. If God will just fix my marriage, then I will trust Him. If God will just fix my finances, then I will trust Him. And God is calling you to trust Him because He is worthy to be trusted. Whatever it is the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart this morning, may you respond in obedience. God, we ask that your Holy Spirit move in this place. In Jesus' name we pray.